Hi, my name's Kieran from the Advisement Book Club and over the coming uh, weeks, months and years I'm going to be bringing you content around the books that we're talking about um, and authors of interesting uh, non-fiction books. So we're going to start today uh, with our first guest. We've got Giles Watkins, author of Positive Sleep. Um, and I'm just going to get right into it, Giles. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, your background and what made you want to write this book? What inspired you? What, what, what was your driver? Thanks, Kieran. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Really, really enjoying. Thank uh, you for being here. Enjoying, enjoying the process. I am a business person. I worked for 30 years for corporates. I worked for Shell International, McKinsey, Coates PLC in increasingly senior leadership roles. And during that period, I suffered from dramatic sleep problems for the last decade, if you like, of that 30-year period. And I had the opportunity to also, towards the end of that time, study a master's at INSEAD, the business school in change management. And as part of that master's, I had to write a thesis about something I wanted to change in my life. And my sleep was something I wanted to change dramatically because it was absolutely terrible. So I studied the thesis, learned about my sleep, and began through that process to apply some of the techniques that I learned to myself, understand what my issue was, what my issues were, and help help address them. Uh, and then a great friend of mine, Ben Renshaw, who's written about a dozen books, uh, I was talking to him and he said, there's definitely a book in this, and I thought he was joking, went to see his editor, and ended up publishing the book. So it, it was both a combination, if you like, of uh, personal my personal journey and lived experience and also a little bit of a little bit of luck if you like as well so you, you talk about the um that you had sleep problems yourself so yeah. obviously that's where the book came from so um when you talk about sleep problems i mean people obviously think about you know insomnia and things like that H how does that impact your day-to-day -day life so what are the kind of day-to-day um, issues. I, I'm, I mean, I'm suppose I'm thinking during the day rather yeah. than. So, how would that impact your life? I suppose. Yeah, well, with with me, there was a trigger. Um, I was engaged to be married. I thought I was maybe going to be made redundant. My then fiance thought I actually was going to be sacked. She didn't understand the process the company was going through, uh, and I got very stressed about it, and that caused the trigger that that gradually led me to sleep less and less and less every night, if you like. Um, and as time went on, I got to the point where, well, first I was exhausted all the time because I wasn't getting proper sleep and I was waking up way too early um, and wanting to sleep earlier than I should. So it started to affect me in terms of not wanting to maybe go out in the evening, socialise, uh, certainly affected my personal uh, relationship, uh, affected my energy with my son, who was quite young at the time, so running around after a toddler wasn't really something I wanted to do. And also I found I was, in the daytime at work, I was trying to catch naps all the time so if I was dry, if I was being I was fortunate I was living overseas quite a lot often had someone else that was driving um, I would always be trying to find 20 minutes to snap in the back of the car or whatever so I was constantly a bit like um, I suppose a, a drug a drug addict is always looking for the next fix I was the person that was always looking for 20 minutes to to grab a nap, especially in the afternoon. So it, it must have affected my, you know, my cognitive ability as well in terms of meetings I was in and so forth. So problems with sleep really affected me at night because initially it would mean that I would want to go to sleep really early, sort of half past eight, nine o'clock. Uh, and then would wake up at three, and I had what's called maintenance insomnia, which is when you wake up and you can't get back to sleep, which is the most common form. And at 3 a.m. I was like this. I was 
you know, wide awake. And and as a result, I mean, it affects you in all sorts of ways. I mean, it's not it's not great for you, the person that you're you're sharing a bed with to start with. Um, at three a.m., the upside is that you can get plenty of things done. Uh, so I actually started. In fact, I started working on my thesis all about my sleep issues at 3 a.m. Uh, the downside is that um, you know you're quite often you want to go back to sleep at four or five, and then if you go back to sleep, you'll be in the middle of a very deep sleep when the alarm goes off. A lot of people again talk about that, talk about the fact they they'll, they'll lie awake for ages and then they'll just be nodding off when it's time to get up. Uh, so I think there are actually upsides if you're getting up in the middle of the night to do stuff. But there are also more more downsides, and you're not getting the the depth or quantity of sleep that probably you need to be, you know, to, to be healthy. Um, we know that a lot of people have sleep problems. Is there any research or information about how many people have sleep problems? And also, I mean, I guess you've already said, you know, if the sleep has a negative effect on your kind of day-to-day -day life, your work, your relationships, what kind of impact could we make, do you think, uh, if, if there were fewer people with sleep problems or people had less of, of sleep problems? Estimates vary massively as to how many people have sleep problems, right through from 15% at any one time in terms of adults, right through to... Well, if, if I think in terms of my own rather anecdotal discussions i would say four out of five people i talk to or adults have sleep have had have had sleep issues at some time okay um if you said to me or you've said to me if we could make that virtually zero what are the effects would be the first effect would be people would be much better at listening to each other when you're tired um, your ability to both interpret non-verbal cues uh, and also your interest in what someone else is saying, because it goes right down, because you're just trying to get through the day yourself. So communication and rapport and empathy and understanding of each other would increase massively from a business point of view and from a personal point of view, for example. Um, I think also the ability to just show up as the best version of yourself. We all know when we've had a good night's sleep that we just feel that more, the appetite for the day in all its sort of manifestations is there. And when you're shattered, it's not there. So those are just a couple of examples of how things would improve. Uh, so it's quite significant. I think certainly from a, a very strict business point of view, productivity and, and just general profitability as well would, would be significantly increased. So there is a, a pretty massive multi-billion pound cost to, to poor sleep. So you, you, a lot of this is focused around obviously the impact on business, mm -hmm. the impact that um, a lack of sleep or poor sleep can have on businesses. How much of um, a person's kind of, I mean this is their health you're talking mm -hmm. about ultimately, how much of that is an employer's problem or should it be an employer's problem or if you flip that round I suppose, how much or what can an employer or a leader be doing to help their people you know, perform at their best by, by getting it's a, a great a question. How, how much of the sleep issue is an employer's problem? How much is more of an individual's challenge? I think I'm a great believer that it's, it's both. Uh, and it should be people working in harmony between the employer and the employee. And 
there will be massive benefit for an employer in people sleeping better. So if a leader in a business or the leaders of the business can both promote better sleep and show that they care about it in terms of their timings and meetings as well, and how much they contact people out of hours and all those kind of behaviours and even encouraging people to do walking telecoms rather than sit around a desk when they, when, you know, if they're engaged in these, you know, the multiple Zoom meetings that most of us are these days. Those are all examples of how companies in a way can start to promote, promote good sleep and good health. Uh, but I, I do believe very much it is, a, it is also an individual responsibility. Uh, and it's just about, for many people, it's as simple as prioritising. It's as simple as saying, actually, those eight hours between 11 and 7 or 10 and 6 or whatever my, my sort of natural plus, um, if you like, constrained times for sleep are, because some people would prefer to sleep a bit later, but they have to get up for, for children or, or work or whatever. Uh, just, you know, ring fence those eight hours and say, that's for sleep. What most of us do, and I'm as guilty in the past of that as anybody, is cut corners and think, well, that's something we can, you know, we can, we can cut an hour off or two hours off, or it's not as important as it might be. And I found out to my cost how important it was. Um, so, but certainly the individual has a massive uh, role to play here. In terms of, um, yeah, it's kind of taking individual responsibility, and also we talk about responsibility of a, uh, the company and, and their leader. Um, you also talk in your book about physiological problems that come from a lack of sleep. So how much can doctors be doing or, or healthcare services or, you know, should we be going to the doctor with, with sleep problems or is there something that they could be doing more proactively? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned physiological issues with sleep, Kieran, because when I wrote the book, I did obviously a fair amount of research for that. And I, the first source I came across in terms of physiological problems relating to sleep listed 75 issues that could in some way be linked to poor sleep. And I went to another source and that listed 85. Now I think there might have been slightly different characterizations and clearly I'm not a medical doctor, but when I looked at the list, my summary was just about everything. So yes, there are most ailments that we're probably suffering from would improve through to poor sleep. Whenever we have the flu or we have some bug, most people say as part of what helped them get better was, well, I slept for a day or two days or whatever it happened to be. In terms of doctors, things have come a long way. And 15 years ago, I, I remember going to see a GP uh, and talk, you know, asking about snoring and could they help? And they said, it's not something we deal with. That was, that was, a, that was the conversation I had. Um, then maybe seven or eight years ago, I went and talked about poor sleep. Uh, the doctor told me he had it far worse than me. And then he gave me something that was uh, both to help with my sleep, but also it was an antidepressant. And I knew that, uh, or I knew enough about what he was giving me to know that it wasn't for me. And I literally put the, put the prescription in the bin outside the, outside the surgery. So I think we've come a, lo a long way from then. We've now got things like um, certain types of cognitive behavioral therapy that are, are focused on insomnia. And I think doctors are more aware of that, although I think the training, I'm not sure, current training for GPs, but certainly 10 or 20 years ago, I think sleep got about half an hour in, in the sort of five years of medical training or something like that, really small amount. So I think there is more that's known of it and there's more that can be done uh, and we are going in the right direction when it comes to doctor's approach to sleep. 
But I think the challenge for them is if they've only got five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is they've got to, to talk to you, it's going to be very limited. And really the conversation around sleep, generally you need to talk to someone about a bit more. You need to explore properly what their sleep issue is and then to start thinking about what other things they can do. And many of those things are not maybe the things the doctor might classically talk to people about. Um, there may be more sort of lifestyle things and so forth that are not as easy to, you know, as easy to write a prescription for, if you like. Um, I think that may be part of the problem. So I think it's both probably the medical profession and also some of the alternative health and medical uh, sources that, that, that can support people as well. Um, and on that kind of alternative, not even alternative medicine, but um, life, well, I, I'm thinking more about alternative lifestyle kind of choices. Mm. So um, <coughs> we haven't really talked about this, but have you got any kind of tips or tricks uh, for people who maybe are suffering from poor health? Um, you know, what's an easy thing that they can do that, that might have a positive impact? One very straightforward thing is, is using magnesium supplements in some way or helping you finding ways to take magnesium in on a daily basis. Firstly, we need magnesium uh, as humans. Secondly, we don't produce it in our bodies or naturally, so we have to take it in in some way. You can take magnesium in through certain foods like broccoli, for example. You can take it in through a spray. You can take it in through having a Epsom salt bath or a magnesium flakes bath. There's, there's different ways you can take it in, but it has an incredibly positive effect upon you in terms of both your sleep and also general relaxation and other health benefits. And yet, um, we don't produce that. So most of us are probably magnesium deficient. And you, as far as I'm aware, you can't overdose on magnesium. So, I mean, I just take a, a couple of tablets or a, a, bit, of, a bit of powder in a, some water at night. But that's, that's something that most people could do. Um, it's a pot of magnesium that will last you three or four months, costs about 20 pounds. So it's not a huge investment. Uh, and yet there are I think only upsides to that. So that's one, that's one thing people can do. And I think another thing, as I've sort of alluded to before, is, is, is finding out probably when you're on holiday or when you have a bit of a downtime, what your natural sleeping pattern is. And if it's sort of 10 till seven or 12 till six or whatever it happens to be, um, hopefully a bit longer than 12 till six, but it, uh, and then doing your best to keep to that pattern day in, day out, and I do mean at weekends. Mm. Uh, so routine. That, right. that element of a routine and prioritizing it. Mm. As soon as people prioritize their sleep and prioritize a routine around it, and a, you know, a, almost like a preparation for going to bed and a bit of time in the mornings, we, 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 we've been discussing um, in terms as well of what you do with your early mornings and so forth. Mm. Um, they, they're amazed by the results normally. Mm. Let's talk about alcohol. Mm. Um, what, how, how do, I mean, a lot of people will have a drink before bed to help them sleep. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And also, I had a slightly silly, frivolous question, but I wonder actually how frivolous it is. Um, already, I can't turn up to work drunk. I can't drink and drive. Do you foresee a time when it would be illegal for me, or at least socially frowned upon, to drive whilst tired, or that, that you know, I could be pulled over for that, or, or you know, I, I would be sent home from work because I'm overtired. 
Could that happen? Almost like a breathalyzer for being tired. Yeah, could that happen? I don't know. Okay, so let, let's... So there's, there's, two, there's two questions there. The first question is around um, alcohol and sleep and how it affects your sleep, really. And the second is around could you envisage when almost tiredness or sleep or fatigue can be tested for and that might stop you being able to drive or work and so forth. Take the first one, the, the sleep issue and, and alcohol. Essentially, alcohol is a sedative, so it will help you go to sleep, but it won't help you stay asleep necessarily. And sometimes the quality of your sleep will be affected. Also, if you've had a skin full, you'll need to get up and use the bathroom and not wake you up anyway. Um, but generally, it's a bit like a sleeping tablet in that regard, and it will help you get off to sleep, but it won't keep you asleep. So the general advice that, that you read, if you read some research around this, is to that the earlier you can have your alcohol, if you like, the better, which, which doesn't mean pouring claret on your cornflakes. It means if you have a drink at 6 or 7 p.m. and don't have much after that, you're likely to sleep a bit better and a bit deeper and a bit longer than if you're still having a scotch at midnight to help you go to bed. So this is the whole nightcap thing. There's, there's some medical evidence that suggests it's not a great idea. Okay, so that's, that's sort of th that side. When it comes to... And this year, I decided to only drink on 24 days a year. Okay, the rest of the year I wouldn't have alcohol. That's personal thing around actually losing weight rather than, than the link between alcohol and sleep. But I have noticed my sleep has got even better as a result, as a result of that. And when I do have a glass of wine or two, I notice the difference. So I've sort of done a little bit of a experiment myself um, for other reasons, but that's what I've noticed. On the subject of... Um, the, 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 if you like, sort of almost like the breathalyzer for mm. fatigue and tiredness. I think that if, it, if that was technologically possible, I can imagine it happening. And why do I say that? Well, for example, deaths that are supposedly linked to fatigue and people falling asleep on a wheel and so forth in America are now apparently higher than deaths linked to alcohol on the road. This is, this is American road-based um, statistics okay so whereas the alcohol and, and driving and drunk driving statistics and deaths have gone like that the other ones have gone as I understand in the, in the other direction um, but you could argue then that, the, that really somebody the government or somebody ought to be doing more if, about if sleep the, yeah I, I think that I think there's certainly there's certainly grounds for that a lot of that would then depend on how it's measured and what the technology is like and so forth. And we know that things like Fitbits and Aura Rings and so forth have got better and better and better over time. And so now they're probably reasonably accurate in measuring your, your sleep, for example. How accurate would they be in terms of measuring your, your overall fatigue? And, 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 and you're going to some quite, I can imagine this could be quite, a lively mm. um, debate with the unions and, mm -hmm. and other bodies, and rightly so, around the, the state that someone's coming to work in. Uh, but I could, I mean, if I suppose, you know, athletes and footballers are wearing all sorts of things when they, when they play the game and they get pulled off depending on their state and so forth. So I suspect the technology is, if it's not there already, it's not far off. So yeah, I could imagine that. Um, uh, and I think, I think what you're touching on, Kim, is really interesting in terms of the, the the, the future of sleep generally and how technology is going to interplay with that uh, because I think there will be significant developments both in terms of someone's fitness for work 
or sport or whatever else it happens to be, but also in terms of what, how technology might interplay with helping us sleep better. Do you think that could be something that's measured in the workplace as well? So I, I'm thinking, I'm just thinking out loud, but um, you know, at the end of the month, maybe I have a work review and I'm marked against how well I performed in XYZ. Do you think that employers might want to track sleep to, to, to have a measure of, of whether I'm performing at my best ability? Yes, I think, and I, I understand that certainly in, um, it, it, it's a question of, I think it's a question of measurability. I know, I know that in Japan, for example, um, some, well, they've had huge issues with the people even taking holidays. Mm. I mean, there's not that much holiday to take, as I understand it, for most Japanese companies, but um, and maybe only three weeks a year compared to, to what, what, what we normally take. But they have launched schemes to incentivize people to actually take time off and to, to be shown that they have taken time off and that they haven't accessed their work email and all these kind of things, okay? And I can imagine something similar coming in for, for sleep, but for that to happen, the leaders of that organization or many organizations or the culture's got to start to shift so that people actually make the connections that we've been discussing about between performance mm. um, and, and sleep. And it would be, I mean, I sort of part of, I guess that's part of the dream of what I'd like to, to see come about, given the fact that most of what I do in terms of my sleep work is with, is with business people and, and, and people in leadership roles. Yeah, I think, did I see in the last few weeks, the Japanese company is paying employees quite a significant amount of money to take holidays? That's right. That's, that's right. That, that's, that's certainly um, happened. And I know that also in European, certain European car companies, both in, certainly in Germany, they had disconnected servers about mm. 10 hours a day, I think it was, yeah. to make sure people were not sending emails or couldn't send emails in that time. Because, and that was really came about due to the strength of the white collar union saying, if you want people to be on call 24 seven, you've got to pay them to be on call 24 mm. seven. Um, so I do think there's moves in the right direction like that. And I also think that actually, whilst COVID led to digital nomads, people working all over the world and, and, and so forth, and maybe wanting to work on slightly different hours. There was also another move that said, which I see more widely also locally, which is people saying, my health really matters, um, and, and, and a general boom in the wellness industry. So small and medium-sized businesses I know now have to have almost a, have to have a wellness proposition. If they're recruiting, People say, well, also, do you encourage me to, you know, have you got a gym membership or can I go off and do a yoga class and all that sort of stuff? And people are actually interested in how their employer views their health in a way that five years ago, mm. particularly in smaller businesses, people weren't, weren't talking about. So uh, I actually think that the trend is in that direction. Uh, a lot will depend on probably enough people doing it and the measurability of it, and those two things are probably linked. Uh, because if you can rely on the data, then people might start getting interested in it. So, uh, Giles, finally, I just want to ask um, for you, Giles, the author, um, how have you found the process of writing this book? Um, have you learned anything from it? Uh, and most importantly, what will the next book be? Well, in terms of the process of writing the book, that began when I wrote the thesis when I was doing the Masters uh, some years ago. In fact, sort of 2014, 2015, so quite a long time ago. And 
that whole process led me to understanding my sleep and that being able to sleep properly. So it, it was life-changing for me just going through that process. And then, as uh, I think I mentioned earlier, I met uh, uh, an old an old colleague of a friend of mine who helped me then see the opportunity to write the book. Uh, writing the book, I learned a lot more because I took the thesis was very much about my personal experience and what I'd been able to do. So actually, to write the book, I learned more, especially around the science of sleep, uh, and. The next step for me actually is a second edition because the book sold quite well. There's been a fair bit of interest in it. And so the publisher came to me earlier this year and said, would you write a second edition? So literally over the next month, I shall be doing that. I shall be adding in a whole section around how COVID affected our sleep and our sleep habits. And also a bit touching what we've talked about earlier, the, sort of the future of sleep, how technology can hopefully help us sleep better and how that may impact on in terms of professional cultures and, and other aspects between work and, and sleep as well. So uh, I find that really interesting, really exciting. And I think the, the focus on this subject will only, will only increase. Well, I look, I've obviously read the first one. I look forward to reading the second one. And uh, yeah, should we wrap it up? And uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's been wonderful. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing you again Thanks, soon. Thanks,